0: A multi-generational workforce can be a blessing or a nightmare, depending on how you manage it. So how do you build and nurture a high-performance team in this environment? How do you build bridges instead of walls? My next guest, Ron Carucci, has some suggestions.
1: This is Business Confidential Now with Hannah hassel giving you the inside scoop on how to ignite more business success by doing the right things in the right way brought to you by business mo llc
0: ron carucci helps some of the world's most influential executives tackle challenges of strategy organization and leadership as the co-founder and managing partner at navalette he has a 30-year track record working in more than 25 countries on four continents on everything from startups to Fortune 10s, turnarounds to new markets and strategies, overhauling leadership and culture, and redesigning for growth. Among his many accomplishments, Ron is also a former associate professor of organizational behavior at Fordham University's graduate school. He's also a best-selling author of eight books, including the recent Amazon number one rising to power he's a regular contributor to the harvard business review and forbes and his work has been featured in fortune ceo magazine inc business insider msnbc business week and many many others so it is such an honor and privilege to have him here with us today welcome to business confidential now ron
1: hannah thanks so much for having me great to be with you
0: well it's wonderful to have you And, you know, this whole topic of multi-generational workforce is just so pressing these days. You know, we have more generations in the workforce at the same time than ever before. And it really is transforming the workplace. Now, in your experience with organizations, what are some of the biggest challenges you've seen it create?
1: Well, you know, one of the things I've I've been perplexed by, Hannah, is the need to segment these generations by the year they were born. So my, I wrote a book about 10 years ago called Leadership Divided, and it was before millennials were actually called millennials, but it was on this emerging generation of, of leaders, and we simply, in the book, delineated between emerging leaders and incumbent leaders. Rather than use the labels, because what we found the labels doing is dividing the organization and the workforce, not uniting it. The labels <clears throat> um, make the one a problem of demographics. The problem is really one of relationship. All the labels do is give me a better vocabulary to explain why someone else irritates me. It doesn't really give me a way to work better with you. And so I would love for for organizations to stop believing that these, um, these delineations have as much meaning as they think they do. They don't. The question about which are you isn't the question. The question is which are you when? There are days I'm a millennial. Uh, There are days I'm a boomer. And so, the, the traits uh, can be dangerous. There are certainly some patterns um, that, that are revealed, but I think in most experiments of, about cross-generational relationships, what they consistently reveal is that people, even across very vast differences of generations, have far more in common than not. Um, and that's a really interesting you, insight
0: that I like. You that. have to
1: stay at the table long enough and in the conversation long enough to appreciate that, because at first glance, of course, it doesn't look that way.
0: Very good. Very good. Well, and, you know, the thing is, too, about the labels, it's really a form of stereotyping, and relationships just cut across everything. So let's talk some more about relationships. What kind of relationship dysfunction have you seen that kind of crops up again as these patterns you were talking about?
1: Oh, there's there's several of them. You know, so the first one has to do with hierarchy and rank, and so, in organizations, um, there, there is a definite difference in, among emerging leaders in their preference for um, a, a, new, a level playing field. And, and because of the way power has been used in the past, and because hierarchy has become something that delineates a role, as it was designed 500 years ago in you know, military organizations, to, to today where it delineates status, many emerging leaders resent that. And so <clears throat> rank can get in the way of a good relationship. Another one is uh, inclusion in decision-making. So you know, a lot of leaders have an expectation that they, they will get a voice in decisions. With this, this word empowerment came onto the scene 20 years ago and convinced everybody that the way to make great decisions was to make sure everybody felt included. And so we have this phenomenon now that I call fellow inclusion where, uh, you know, when I give a talk, I'll ask people, how many of you have walked in a meeting before uh, under the guise of there to solve a problem or make a decision only to realize two and a half minutes into the meeting the decision you were there to make had already been made and you were there under the ruse of being able to make it look like you were part of it? Of course, everybody raises their hands. And so why we thought that the word empowerment was going to eliminate 500 years of hierarchical command and control, I don't know. But the reality is it's difficult for leaders to let go of that control. But everybody wants to say and so younger leaders tend to resent having fake inclusion. Um, and I've, I've, I've actually been with clients when uh, one CEO where a head of IT walked in, all tattooed and pierced up, and the CEO pulled out a document and said, hey, I just wanted to get your input on this, on this um, IT capital plan for next year. And the guy kind of looked perplexed and uh, I didn't say anything, and the CEO said, "What? what what's wrong?" He said, "Well, I know you sent that plan to the board yesterday, so I don't know what you want my input for." Um, I wrote I a blog post about six or eight months ago on called "We're Better Together," and it opened up with these words entitled "Overly Ambitious, Feedback Hungry, um, Lazy, Self-Serving," and I said, "Sounds like millennials, right?" I said, but, but I, I went on to say those words opened up a 1969 Life magazine article about baby boomers. No kidding. So, yeah, so we, we, we like to recycle the same labels because I think generationally where you're at in life, um, we tend to have very similar tendencies, and we just forget that. That when you're in your 20s and early 30s, you're spreading your wings. You want a voice. You want to say. I think back in the 60s, they had different options for ways to express that than we do today. Um, you know, they, we didn't have Twitter and <laughs> Facebook then. Um, but the reality is we all have those needs. And so we forget that generation you know, and the other thing about the millennials that I, I, I so love about them is this was the generation we told could and would change the world. And they could do anything they want to do that. Well, it turns out they believed us. So now our job is to get out of their way and help them do it. And now we're frustrated with them because they want, they want the shot to make the impact that we told them they could make. And that means that for the rest of us who are, who are ahead of them, our job is to make a way, and that's inconvenient. But uh, unless you're in a coma, if you, don't look, if you can't look around and see that the world does need a lot of changing, and here's a generation coming on with full force wanting to do it, I don't know why we want to stop them.
0: <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So in, in helping to promote better relationships, what are some steps that
1: business leaders can take? Well, first of all, I, you know, I think the needs of any relationship apply here. So first of all, um, do, do, can you participate in a relationship with somebody at a different level of experience than you and make it mutual? So most millennials today don't want a quote-unquote mentor. They, they want that term, but what they've watched is that mentoring means cloning. It means I turn you into me. But as a, as a seasoned leader, as a veteran incumbent leader, can you participate in a relationship with a millennial or someone of less experience than you and let them put as much mark on you as you put on them? Can you be open to their feedback and open to their voice into your development and learn from them as much? Because that's what millennials really want. So level the playing field of learning as well as uh, status. Um, the other thing is be a champion. Learn to put someone else's agenda on yours. Don't just put your own agenda on yours, and I think that, um, the last thing I would say is can you can you have an honest conversation can, you know in most organizations truth has been exchanged for pleasantries, and you know the only place you tell the truth is in some private dark place um, can you can you be a person of uh, of authenticity that actually is authentic we can all we all know how to look authentic we all know how to sound genuine while still faking it but most people can see right through that. I ask people often, how many of you have, feel like you have great BS barometers? You just intuitively know when BS barometer, when you're being BS. Everybody's hands go up. I ask them, well, then how come you think other people's BS barometers don't work as well when you're doing it? So we'll put those away. Life's too short. The world needs too much work to be done. Just be honest. Sometimes being honest is uncomfortable, but be honest. I think people will far more, and so people are starved for relationships they can trust, for a conversation they can rely on. The thing I love about millennials, you know, they, they say they're, they're known for being feedback hungry, but you know what? They can take a hard hit far greater than any boomer I've worked with. You know, For my peer group, you have to sort of dance on eggshells, and they were taught you should say always include a nice thing with a hard thing. These these younger leaders can take hard feedback and welcome it because they know they want to get better. And so you don't have to pull any punches with them, and that's so refreshing. And I think they don't have people mentoring them that share that value, who who learned that degree of honesty was okay. And so I think if you can incorporate, you know, hard truths into your organization, into your conversations, uh, people will want to be in relationship with you.
0: Those are fantastic ideas. I, I can imagine, though, that would be difficult for certain people to be able to, for example, create a safe space to talk if the relationship hasn't been really strong. And, you know, as you said, the other side, the employees or the re- person reporting to the senior person, their their BS meter is like going off the charts. They don't know what to believe. So how, how does somebody start to create a safe space to talk and have that honest? It's a
1: great such a great question, Hannah, and and, the, and I love what you said. It's a start, right? I'm not going to go into a room and flip a switch today today and say, "Okay, now it's safe to be honest." <laughs> um, you, you have to you have to build that muscle and, and earn your right. Um, and so, you know, we the way we work with our clients is to we do a, an analysis that looks at the state of every every critical relationship you have in your sphere, because you know. If you and I work together in an organization and we share our functions sit aside from each other and we have to work with each other, you know, we're asking this relationship to hold a great deal of complexity, right? So whether it's supply chain and operations or whether it's sales and marketing or whatever the body of work is, there's a degree of complexity and trust that getting this work done requires. If that degree of trust and complexity and collaboration doesn't exist between you and I, the work will suffer. And so... The first thing is, do you understand with each of your critical relationships what's required of that relationship? What is being asked of it to accomplish on behalf of the organization and those you serve? Then do on, an honest assessment about, okay, where is the relationship today? Can, you know, Are we asking a, uh, a five-pound bag to hold a 10-pound body of work? A, and if so, how do we increase the quotient of trust? How do we increase the quotient of mutual understanding? How do we increase the mutual body of trust where – um, the relationship we're, being, we're in, participating in can do what it's being asked to do. How do we increase the, body, the degree of, of ability to hold complexity, hard decisions, conflicts, um, me- messy, complex collaborations? Um, the, what is the degree of trust we have to have to be able to do, accomplish all that together? And so how do we build our relationship to do what, the, what we're asking of it to do? Most leaders charge headlong in. To the relationship, assuming all that's in place, and of course, you make it worse because if you ask of somebody suddenly now you have to trust me, or suddenly now you have to have be able to resolve conflicts with me, or suddenly we have to make decisions together now, and you have to, we have to trust each other when that's never been the case before. Uh, uh, of course, you're going to be asking for trouble because you just can't turn that turn that around, end up with a pill or with waving a wand. And so, <clears throat> helping or helping people. Create a pathway to start. Uh, if it's people that you lead, um, and you inherit a team from somebody else, a leader that was loved, and now suddenly you're in the mix, and they don't know who you are, how do you go about making making your intentions known to build deeper trust-based relationships with those you lead, and what you expect of them? Only over time can people come to believe, yeah, he really does want my honest feedback. Because every every new leader says, I want your, it's an open door policy. I want your honest feedback, and then until you give it to them, and then it's, you know, they don't really want it, and so. Over time, your ability to make your um, the principles you espouse true in your behavior over time will build people's confidence that, in fact, they can be honest. But it isn't something that happens overnight.
0: So what do you think is a reasonable timeline for that to happen? And the other part of the question is, is, is it normal or is it customary to have a third party involved to sort of mediate or to help with that, smooth that transition, and maybe create that safe space to talk to be able to get to the bottom Great of what's question. going
1: on. Great question, Hannah. The first one would be the, time, the amount of time w- is commensurate with two things. One, how complicated does the relationship have, uh, how, how much does it have to hold? So if there's a tremendous amount of change or tre- tremendous amount of stress at the intersection of our relationship, um, then it may take longer. The second factor is, what's the state of relationship today? If it's, we're just meeting for the first time, then I have no back baggage, that's helpful. If there's a lot of distress or rivalry or silly comp- competition or even unresolved conflict between us and we're starting in the negative, that's going to take a little longer. Um, and if we have a somewhat positive regard uh, in our history that we can build upon, that can go a little faster, but those are the two factors: is what's what the state of relationship today, and what what is it we have to ask of this relationship uh, to to accomplish? When it comes to um, you know having a third party help or external help, I'm obviously biased because I believe that it's difficult work, and it's not natural for leaders to be able to start off a conversation or a new relationship by saying, "Okay, so here's what you need to know about working with me." You know, I'm often impatient, I tend to run over people, and not listen very well. And it's important that you know that when I don't get my way, I get really moody. <laughs> right. Or, or um, you need to know that I tend to be really shy and I'm not really very assertive and I'm often not to have to push back because uh, I'm afraid of how you're going to respond. I don't want to make you angry. Would that We could be that honest because if we were, it might change the relationships. But having somebody that can help bring to bear some of those truths of what each person in a relationship brings to it, both good and not so good, can help go a long way to, you know, getting off on the right foot and then monitoring along the way to make sure the relationship is accomplishing what it needs to accomplish.
0: I couldn't agree with you more because uh, people sometimes get so caught up in fear of retaliation that they don't know when to start trusting and having that safe space to talk, which is what someone such as a consultant such as yourself can create, can sometimes go a long way to to cutting through all the smoke and mirrors that that other folks would like to throw up there. But I'm just wondering, you know, with all of the, the discussion that you've had about leaders and it, the history that comes with organizations, it sounds like maybe smaller or startups and maybe even entrepreneurial-type organizations might be better equipped to have these conversations. What do you think?
1: You know, it's an it's it's interesting due sort story, Hannah. Sometimes they're not inclined to have them because they're just moving too fast or they don't, they don't think they're necessary. There's so much sixth sense in a startup up family, because those are usually very tribal, c- tribal cultures, but they don't have to talk about what's implicit. They just sort of know it. Um, and so when, you, when, when, they, when they start having to go from startup to grow-up, and the implicit has to become explicit so they can scale, it becomes hard because suddenly you, people realize, hey, I thought you used to, read, used to read my mind. Now you don't read my mind anymore. And so you know, the, the, it, the start-up part of it, to slow them down long enough to insert process can be hard. In larger companies, you have people who are more um, sort of uh, relationally intelligent because they've been through some training program or they've read some article, but where politically it's become difficult to have the conversation, right? So people are far more aware that it's needed, but far less able to do it. Uh, And so there you have to break down the fears in people's minds, the fear of retribution, usually which is far more irrational than true. Usually when I ever hear the whole, we can't talk out loud because people get fired here, and I ask, well, how many people have been fired for being honest? There's nobody they can point to. It's just a irrational fear floating around. And the boss may have lost his temper one time two years ago, and it's never been forgotten. So I think in, depending on the maturity of the organization requires different ways to set the stage to get the conversation to happen. But it's just difficult to put in place the norm for um, p- people being honest.
0: Okay. Let's say people do stick their neck out and they start to have these conversations. What other types of things should they be doing in order to grow the relationship?
1: Mm-hmm. So uh, like, like, like any garden, has to have weeds pulled, you've got to check in. You've got to make sure that, you know, uh, we, we made some commitments to each other. Are we doing those? It's like a marriage, right? I told you I loved you when I married you. Well, so now it's 25 years later, I'm not so sure anymore. You have to be tending to the relationship. And you always have to come back to... Not many people look to chemistry as, that, you know, how does it feel? And that's one indicator of a productive relationship, especially a cross-generational one. But there's also a, a results one, right? There, there's a, we're not just paid friends here. We're, we're meant to accomplish something together. There's something that, you know, one plus one has to equal four here. So we have to make sure that the relationship is not just doesn't just feel good or that we both feel good in it, but that it's actually contributing what it's meant to contribute, that in fact a blend of my contribution and a blend of your contribution is actually producing the result we say we produce. Um, It it, it does no good to the organization if we both feel good and enjoy each other and have lunch every now and then, but no results are happening. Okay. And then I would say, you know, um, the relationship exists in a context. So the last thing I would say is, in the broader team you sit on, in the broader set of departments you sit in, how are others experiencing relationship? You know, sometimes relationships become so good they become exclusive, right? right. And so then people start fearing you because they, they don't, all of a sudden now you, me and my boss are so close, people stop talking to me. Right. Right. And so, you know, every relationship plays out on, on the jumbotron, especially at senior levels of the organization. So yeah, any relationship that has too much tensions in it or any relationship that's overly close has the risk of sending missed signals. And so it's very important that the people in the relationship are monitoring how others are metabolizing that relationship so that you're not um, you know, uh, strengthening the relationship so much that it's at the expense of other people.
0: Fair enough. So uh, basically any leader's got an awful lot on his plate when it comes to maintaining relationships. Oh, my gosh, it's a mess. It's a mess. <laughs> it's a, big a mess. mess. So how does anybody be successful, Ron? <laughs>
1: you know what's really, what's unfortunately scary, but it's just a harsh truth we did so a follow up, uh, research study we did to leadership divided was rising to power. You graciously mentioned that earlier. It's a 10 year longitudinal study on how it is people rising to senior levels of organization stick and succeed. Since we knew for the last 20 years that more than half of them fail within the first 18 months, which has just been a normal statistic we've accepted as the way things are. Of course, recruiters love it because it's it's an annuity for them. Right, but. But why have we allowed that to be okay for so long? Half the carnage of people's careers, people's families, lost opportunities, squandered millions of dollars has just sort of been the normal. Well, when it started to become our clients, we thought, well, we can do better. So 10 years of research, 2,700 people later we studied. and, And aside from all of the landmines, organizations put in the way of these leaders on the way up, we were able to isolate the ones that actually stick and succeed, and they did four things incredibly well. Um, one of them was relationships. These are the people that everybody wanted to work for. They had great relationships with their direct reports, their peers, and their bosses. Um, They were also great decision makers. They had incredible contextual intelligence. They knew the business and how it made money and the industry in which it sat. And they had incredible breadth. They knew how all the pieces of the organization fit together. They could go from playing first violin to being a conductor. And we ran 99 regression analyses on this data because I did not want to say that these leaders had to do all four of those things really well. But the reality was the sample was very clear. Well, if you did three out of the four, well, you probably have a high likelihood of failure. The cost of leadership and the requirements of leadership today, especially senior leadership, are just profoundly difficult. And organizations are not doing enough to prepare leaders to be successful, which is why half of them are failing. But if you prepare people from the very beginnings of their career – to, be, to, to form and, and sustain great relationships with people they lead, people they're peers with, and people that they report to. If you teach them how to make hard and data-based decisions, if you teach them how to, to see all the pieces of an organization, not just their own, and if you teach them um, the context in which they work, their industry, their business, their department, and teach them how to read the contextual tea leaves, you can make great executives, but to assume that people are going to rise up all finished is kind of silly. But the reality is that's what it takes. And so um, leaders who find out too late that they have very low relational intelligence or very low RQs uh, are at a deficit because that's one of the of the four patterns. That's one of the ones that'll kill you quickly. Um, you know, if you look at the failure rates and study the people who studied why they fail, um, it's typically your relationship with your direct reports or your peers uh, that are the first ones to you know back away from you and send you over the edge.
0: But yet some people can rise to some pretty senior positions and still not have great relationships. I mean, isn't that kind of like the Peter Principle? How do those two things square?
1: <laughs> it's so, it's, I was sitting at a very large, global, 115,000-person organization the other day uh, doing a presentation to some very senior leaders who are in the middle of a very difficult situation, very difficult transformational journey. They've just done a huge reduction in force, and they're trying to make their way through it. And the leadership person turned to me with great shock, and she said, do you ever see people get promoted into jobs that they're not prepared for? <laughs> <laughs> and I, tried, I didn't want to laugh because you know, she's probably in her early mid-30s, but, but you know, want to make a difference there. I said, oh, oh, my dear, it happens every day. We move people along under the guise of their high potential, or we're going to fast-track them, or this is a stretch assignment. We, we have labels for this neur- neuroticism to justify it. But we basically take otherwise pretty good people with a lot of potential, and we may set them up to fail, and then we have to say, oh, they weren't a fit, or, well, that didn't work out, or they didn't stick, or we have some other set of labels to explain our own failure. Um, and it's, it's just cruel. I mean, it really is incredibly cruel to, to continue to take great talent in whatever form you have it and move it along without preparing it and then waste it
0: and waste the domino effect of what that misplaced oh. talent causes throughout the organization. It's a ripple effect. It's a
1: huge ripple effect. It's yeah. a huge ripple effect. And, and starting with that person's family. Um, and, and you know, I wish, gosh, I wish, I wish, since recruiters are going to feed off this frenzy anyway, I have to replace that person within the first 12 months. You have to pay double. I, I, I get to fine you for your failure. Not that the search was bad, right? Um, but that you know, if I, if, I put, if, I, if I have to put my application on the line to find you another candidate and answer the question why the last one failed, uh, then you to, you got to pay me twice. If there's some consequence to organizations for their failure in this process, they felt the financial pain of the billions they're wasting. They might do it differently. It could, it, here's what's so weird about it. It's not like we don't know what to do. It's not like we don't know what it is to really prepare a leader for their future careers, to put, really build the muscles you need. Some companies are doing a brilliant job with this, you know, moving talent around, moving it across the organization, across businesses, you know, investing in cultivating and coaching work, um, not, you know, not just training. Training is the least of the, of the issue, but really cultivating people's abilities and preparing them. So it can be done. So if you're choosing not to do it, it just means you're lazy. Uh, there's no other reason. It, it, I mean, it, it isn't because you haven't got the money or because your business is in too much trouble or whatever excuse you're making. You're just being lazy. Um, and for harming people's lives and careers and your own shareholders' opportunities that you could have delivered on, you should be you should be penalized for that.
0: Well, I guess in the long term, they, they will be because they they suffer with the turnover. You know, the thing is, though, on the outside, you know, when somebody is interviewing or being recruited, heavily recruited by a firm, you never really know what you're going to find once you peel back, and, and you're really sitting there, and you're there for a week, a month, a year, and all of a sudden, you see where all the warts and blemishes are, and you go, my gosh, what have I done?
1: Right. You know, what was I thinking?
0: What was I well, thinking? And,
1: and whenever, whenever, I, whenever I'm coaching executives who are in the interview process, I give them very hard questions to answer, to ask in the process. I, I, I make sure you're sitting with these kinds of people. Here's how you test an organization to see if it's a place worthy. I, I tell executives, you, you're hiring your next boss. Make sure they're worthy of the job. Uh, and you're selecting them as much as they are. But, but, but candidates get so focused on selling themselves. And then when the organization is recruiting somebody because they want to sell them to a piece of talent they want, um, you know they're, they're blowing smoke. And so there are ways to get at the warts. So that I mean you should first of all just assume they're there. They are there. Um, the question is can you tolerate them when you find them? And more importantly, when you find them, what will be tolerated of you? How how will you be allowed to address them when they're discovered? Because if they're warts that people want to left unaddressed, that's an entirely different issue.
0: Well, and they may say they want them addressed. Just as you said earlier, you know, when we first started this conversation about, yes, I, I want to have the, hear the truth. You know, you can be honest, but in reality, you know, you may see one of your coworkers walk into the boss's or the CEO's office and then come out holding their head, and you're like, oh right. yeah, so you told them the truth, and I'm, I'm not going to do that. You just see, they got their yep. head handed to them. So,
1: yeah, and, and I think the, way, the the time to test for that is up before you get in there. And so I often have executives who are candidates for big jobs ask those great questions let's rehearse our first conflict let's imagine I've just discovered XYZ problem in your sales problem or, or, or a major flaw in your consumer data or a major set of costs you know. and I'm coming to you to tell you this now let's assume I don't do it judgmentally or harshly or like a jerk let's assume I reasonably bring you a, a um, well thought through assessment of things and, the, and the need for change let's have that conversation now and I, and I tell them, rehearse it. Ron, this is terrific
0: advice. Thank you so much. For those listeners who are job hunting, looking to hire their next boss, or if they are the boss, they're an executive, a manager, or an entrepreneur who is looking to improve their relationship within their organization, with their reports, their peers, supervisors. This is really valuable content. So thank you, thank you, thank you. If you're listening and you'd like more information about Ron and his books, come on over to businessconfidentialradio.com. Today we talked a lot about Ron's book called Leadership Divided. You can get more information along with how to contact Ron and even get more sage advice by connecting with him through social media. I've got the links for you. Just come on over to businessconfidentialradio.com. Look for the episode titled Powerful Ways to Resolve Multigenerational Workforce Problems. Thank you for joining me today. You can get more information about today's guest and the show notes on our website, businessconfidentialradio.com. And connect with me on social media. I'd love to hear from you and stay in touch. Next week, Business Confidential Now with Hannah Hazel-Kelchner will be back with more business information and inside scoop you need to succeed in your business. Till then.